Genesis chapter 1 tonight. Take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter number 1. We're continuing the series that we began several weeks ago. In fact, this is the ninth message that we have done in a series that we called, Does It Really Matter? And when we first came up with this series, quite honestly, I didn't have an end date in mind or honestly, I had some topics that I thought I'd like to cover these. And then through the course of the last couple months, that has um, morphed somewhat, changed, but it has carried on in a direction that we were hopeful it would, it would take when we first launched out into, you know, does it really matter? And tonight is one of those questions that our culture today is asking some, some significant and consequential questions that should be answered. I know that oftentimes when we begin with the question, does it really matter, you've already surmised that we're going to say it does. And that's not any different for tonight. So the content that we're going to cover this evening is content that does matter, or quite frankly, we, we wouldn't be spending time covering it. So the song we learned tonight was Ancient of Days. And I'm listening to us sing that song, and then I'm, I'm appreciating the introduction that Dr. Zacharias gave to the song, Ancient of Days. And he said, you know, he's referred to God, the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son, referred to as the Ancient of Days. And, and this is one who exists beyond or above outside of time. And then I'm, I'm just processing in my mind the reason we're going to cover something tonight and the reason we can say with, with some aspect of conclusion is because God, the ancient of days, is the same always, yesterday, today, and forever. The reason he's always the same is because he does exist beyond time, above it. So we know something is true because it emanates, it originates from God. Now I change and you do. In fact, in studying for this message, there have been things about my own theology that have expanded. I've, I've come to some conclusions and I will change some of the ways that I teach regarding the body because of what we're going to cover in just a few moments. I think I've oftentimes downplayed certain aspects thinking, well, that's, that's really not all that important because I'm going to get a new one and so why is the body so important? But I've changed on that. I've learned, I'm growing. I've, I've changed in so many different aspects of my life over the course of time. So if you, if you ask my wife, when we were covering things about marriage that we did, I think it was this past summer. One of the things that I mentioned, I read a quote from a guy that, that I read in a book and that was that he, you know, his wife has been married to five different people over the course of the past 30 years and all of them had been him. And what he was saying is over the course of these years, now we're, she's married to the same person, but in a sense, she's been married to about five different persons because of change. But there is a God who doesn't. So when I can figure out this God and start to understand where is he on this topic, I can have something to hold on to, something to base my thinking on. And even though it may not be most convenient for my thinking, it can be accurate, something solid to hold on to. When I was a kid, and I've probably said this to you before, so forgive the repetition, 
But when I was a kid, I, I used to hear heading out the door the little phrase, hey, don't forget whose kid you are. Okay, and it's not because I was especially dense and I'm going to like, who do I belong to? So it's not that, all right? It's, it's just this idea that my parents are sending me out the door and they're saying, hey, you belong to someone and you're representing someone. So your identity matters. I can remember when I was probably third or fourth grade, growing up in Michigan, coming home from Lincoln Elementary School, and we had this beautiful snow. Now, in Colorado, when we were there, you didn't really get crunchy snow. You got a lot of powder in Colorado, but, but in Michigan, you got crunchy snow. It was that heavy, thick, wet snow. So I'm coming home from school, third or fourth grade, this beautiful snow is coming down, this blanket of snow on the ground. And so I'm picking up snow, you know, and the, the normal, natural, God-ordained thing to do with snow is to make snowballs. So then I started a physics lesson. I wanted to see about, you know, there's physics involved in this, mathematics, the whole thing. The arch of a snowball and if you could time the arch of the snowball and then gravity along with moving vehicles, okay? So here I am, you know, vehicles are driving by and I'm chucking up snowballs, you know, seeing them come down and land on car windows. And I thought, this is great fun. And I'm doing this when cars are coming by, man, I'm throwing snowballs up and boom, you know, on their hood, hopefully on their windshield, that was my goal, okay? And um, again, when I was a kid, we had these, these things called nosy neighbors, okay? And people knew who I was, people knew who my dad was. And then, um, you know, we didn't have cell phones, but, but they, everybody had these things that actually attached to a wall. And so they picked it up and they called my house and told my parents that I'm throwing snowballs at cars. So I get home, did you ever get the question, so how was your walk home from school? And immediately it's like your brain is racing, like what do they know, all right? And so I said, it's fine, fine, fine. And then I got asked, um, you know, so-and-so called, oh, and, um, and you're throwing snowballs at cars. And then I can remember my dad said, Redlands don't throw snowballs at cars. Okay, my first thought was, wow, I wonder who I belong to, okay? <laughs> that wasn't my first thought because he's not saying, you know, Redlands don't throw snowballs at cars, so you must have been switched at the hospital, okay? What he's saying is that's inconsistent with who you are. So Redlands, they, they don't throw snowballs at cars, so cut it out. He was instilling in me some sense of identity. Who am I? Your Bibles are open right now to Genesis chapter 1. Look down at verse number 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So today we've not done a great job of articulating a working theology of the entire person. That is your soul, your spirit, and your body. In other words, God didn't, didn't create man and instill or have this soul and this spirit and then find a place that would take the body. Excuse me, take the soul and the spirit. It's interesting, if you just think through the progression 
The Bible says that different from all the rest of creation, God actually forms and fashions man. He, he created the body first. And then God gave that body a spirit, a soul. He breathed into it. And at that point, he animated a body. God didn't, in a sense, um, have a soul and a spirit and find some place where it could reside. Your body was designed specifically, purposefully by God. So God has obviously intentions for something that he did design. You know, if, if you wanted to talk about the, the most controversial of Bible books, we would probably quickly conclude that it is the book of Genesis. Well, this is this book of beginnings, this book of initial events and this initial God instilling purpose into a body created by him to fulfill some mandate. From this, we can understand that our gender, which God created, is biologically assigned rather than psychologically deduced. In other words, God created a body intentionally and he called it something. He then separates this creation as it continues on into two genders, male and female. Many in our culture today view their bodies as somewhat of a, a blank canvas. Like this is my body and I'm going to do with this body what I want to regarding expression. And so in a sense, we, we start to customize the body. We, we try to self-express like this is who I am and we many times use our bodies, not just the clothing upon our bodies, but our actual bodies as this, this canvas, so to speak, for self-expression. And then at times it goes to a point where not only am I trying to provide some self-expression, but now we may actually go to the place where we re-identify that identity that was instilled to us by our father. If we wanted to use just, you know, more, more um, layman's terms, by our biology. The Apostle Paul helps us understand that there's something about our identity that actually comes from God that is revealed in part through our bodies. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. That includes your body, your soul, and your spirit, specifically created as the workmanship of his hand. While there are many ways we could define what it looks like to walk in this way that's reflective of his workmanship, let's go back again to Genesis chapter 1, verse number 28, and see what does that look like. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we're going to read, at least in part, what we would refer to as the creation mandate. Okay, anything that's created is, is done so for a purpose. 
Whether we're creating some artwork where we are expressing something through the artwork, whether we're building something like a pulpit that will be used to preach from, whatever it is that we build, we create, we have a purpose, something that is intended behind the creation. So what's God's intention? What's the creation mandate? What is it that you and I were actually built and designed to do? Okay, Genesis chapter one, verse number 28. And God blessed them and God said unto them, here, here we go, here's our mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So if we boil this down, what's our mandate? Be fruitful. Okay, now, now think, be fruitful and multiply And then he goes on and he says, really, fill the earth. Okay, now, if I'm intended, designed by God to procreate, if we want to go way back regarding, okay, my identity, what am I designed and built to do? We can go way back to when God first tells us, this is what life looks like and this is what you're built to do. Okay, so I want you to bear fruit. I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. There there are only, there's only one way to accomplish that creation mandate. There are not multiple ways and there are certainly, please know I'm, I'm trying to be careful about this and I'm trying to be anything but unkind. But, but there are only two genders that can come together to fulfill the creation mandate. Only two. And so from the very beginning, when we start to think, what am I created? What am I designed to do? Well, I'm told in part, and then I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to cultivate the earth. I'm supposed to subdue it. I'm supposed to rule over it. Now that means steward it. It doesn't mean that I, I just go do whatever I want because it belongs to me. No, I'm supposed to steward, take care of this place that God has, has, has given us to enjoy. So unless I have an accurate view of my body, my gender, and my creator, I can't fulfill the very purpose for which I was created. If God had created woman, his mandate for all of mankind and his intentions regarding sexuality could never be fulfilled if only he created women, if only he created men. If he, if he created Adam and then... By the way, if we really wanted to dig into this a little bit further, we could even say that, you know, sometimes we say that God created man and and then Adam said, I'm lonely. Well, you know, think through this just a little bit more. Who was his company? I mean, Adam, Adam is, he's relating with, he's interacting with Almighty God. Maybe the, the, I don't know this and I'm not trying to, to build a, a whole theology on this, but maybe the reason why God gave this be fruitful and multiply and then in chapter two, he says, okay, now I want you to go recognize that you're not yet prepared to fulfill the creation mandate. And so now it's not just that I'm lonely, like I've got work to do, I've got a job to do and I cannot do this in the way that you've done all of, you've, you've prepared all of the rest of creation to do. So how am I gonna do what you've told me to do? And God says, okay, now you're ready for the completer, that which will complement, that which will bring fulfillment to the creation mandate. 
When I accept the creation mandate, I must also submit myself to recognize that there is only one kind of relationship that can fulfill it. You know, we won't take time right now, but we could go a little bit further and just see, okay, well, God creates woman, Genesis 2, 21 through 25. And then we see that there is only one biological man, one biological woman that fit the definition of marriage. Because after he says, okay, this is woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And, and, and then he goes on and we see marriage begins. For this cause... Because there's a man and a woman and they can fulfill the creation mandate, they can procreate. They can come together in a sexual marriage bed relationship and they can be fruitful. They can multiply. They can fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, so when when I start to understand this, then marriage happens. Now for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and, and shall cleave unto his wife. Again, a a biological male, a biological female will come together and they too shall form intimately. We might even say in every way, physically, in a sense, on a soul level, on a spiritual level, they too shall form something that wasn't there before. If If you take one male plus one male you have two males the same equation works for a woman and a woman two women but interestingly in marriage what God says is you take one man and one woman in marriage and you have one couple you have one new thing these two shall be one flesh it's the only it's the only physical equation where where one plus one does in a sense equal one This may be all rather simplistic if our story ended in Genesis 1 and 2 where we're created in the image of God given the creation mandate but then we get to chapter 3 and in chapter 3 we experience the fall and the end of that that perfect harmony in creation and mankind along with the rest of creation is now broken by sin. There's a guy named Sam Albury he's been speaking on this topic quite a bit And one of the ways he explains this challenge for Christians is that, and he said it this way, he said, we have old creation hardware running new creation software. Well, our bodies are the old creation hardware, but then we're given this, this, he's he's quickened us, he's made us alive. We're spiritually born from above. We We have now this new creation software and we have a hard time sometimes running these two simultaneously. Today, most do view their bodies as these canvases of creativity. It's viewed as our primary means of self-expression. So we begin to modify, even alter. But notice how my true identity is revealed in my flesh by the work of Christ. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 11. Excuse me, in Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20. Think through the aspect of our bodies with this passage of scripture. Paul said, I am, this is who I am. This is a statement of identity. Okay, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He's saying, I know this is, this is mind-blowing theology, but I died with Jesus. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, still, I live. Yet, not I, 
but Christ liveth in me. Now think through the the, the physical aspect of this. And the life which I now live in the flesh with my body, this life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is who I am in my body. I am crucified with Christ regardless of my feelings. Regardless of my feelings, this is who I am. The Apostle Paul, he strums this chord further all throughout his epistles, but we see it directly addressed in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. Now he gives this list of of what we call like, oh, those are terrible sins. Okay, the, the, the kind of sins that we're addressing tonight. And Paul says, such were some of you. But here's who you are now. This is your new identity. But ye are washed. Ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. This is truly who I am. I'm washed, sanctified, justified in Christ. This is who I am. This is my identity. Sometimes we say, yeah, but I don't feel like that. I don't feel like it. Okay, if a person doesn't feel married, they don't feel married. I'm, I'm not trying to embarrass them, but you, you, they haven't been married as long. So, so Trey and Karen are sitting down here. Um, Trey, how long have you guys been married? Almost two years. He swallowed hard first, like, <clears throat> um, <laughs> almost two years. Good answer. Good recovery, Trey. Okay, so, so Trey and Karen have been married for almost two years. This, this, was, this happened to Julie and I when we first got married, and maybe it happened to you guys. We got married, and we, we, we're, we're, I now pronounce you man and wife. And, and I can remember, you know, like the first several months, it's like, wow, we're, we're, we're married. And sometimes you wake up like, whoa, and there's a person in the bed next to you. Like, whoa, oh, yeah, I'm married. It's okay, you know. And, and sometimes you, you, you say, you know, and then take that a little bit further. It's like, well, what if you're mad at the other person? I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm so in love like I did at the altar. Or I'm bothered or I'm angry or I'm upset or whatever. I don't feel like I did when I, okay, are you still married? Our feelings go all over the place, but our, our identity is not based on our feeling. It's based on the fact of who am I? And I think that's why Paul takes such pains to say, this is who you are. You are Rosaria Butterfield communicated what many, I think, believe today. Butterfield said, your sexual desires, that many believe that, your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. If your sex desire is the only thing that defines you, it has determined you. Well, this is what I am. For a person to say, well, I'm gay because I feel that way, or I've always felt that way, or what do I do about these? Well, now what we've done is we've said, my, my sexual desires are what define me. I'm no more and I am no less than my sexual desires. And our culture today begins to, to, to strum this chord of our sexual desires define us, determine us, and they should always delight you. Because really, 
Is there anything more to life than pleasing your body? But we should ask before we accept this premise, is it valid? Am I solely defined by my sexual desires? Is this my true identity? The world is telling us that our sexuality is the very core of who you are. Further, we're told that that we can be sexually whatever we want to be. That you actually create your own definition and it's entirely up to you to decide. So we keep changing our definitions. You know, we begin by, we, we begin by defining sexuality as male and female, but then, then, I mean, I can remember when LGB was the only way we would define ongoing identity. Um, LGBTQ, LGBTQAI, LGD, LGBTQAI plus, and I'm not be, trying to be silly about this. I'm just trying to, to, to help us understand there's really no end to that. So while we have codified in some way, shape, or form some 50-plus genders, really everybody acknowledges who says, well, well, gender, who can even define that? Well, you can't define that once you move off-center from the, the biology with which we are his workmanship. So the creator, the first, the great initiator of everything is the one who paints the picture. We're we're going to have to do some, quite honestly, clear-headed thinking. And the process, we not only want to be biblically correct, but we want to be compassionately Christ-like. Because compassion without truth is reckless. And truth without compassion is harsh. And I think it's oftentimes more reflective of the Pharisees than it is of Christ. So as we start to to further look at this topic, please know this is not the kind of sermon that I am looking for a strong amen, preach it. What I'm looking for is for us to think distinctly Christ-like and come to conclusions that do matter and, and originate from a source deeper than our sexual desires. So the first question we ask is, who am I? One of the great challenges that people are facing today, <clears throat> obviously, is that of identity. It's something that, because of culture, we've concluded can be self-determined. C.S. Lewis is attributed with this statement. The most dangerous ideas in society are not the ones that are being argued. Let me say that again. The most dangerous ideas in society are not the ones that are being argued but the ones that are assumed what he's saying is let's let's start to tear these conclusions apart and see are they valid let's put it on the, the 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 table so to speak of thought and let's start attacking these in different ways and say does this stand the test that the filter through which everything should be going. And, and if you're a Christ follower, you're claiming his name. You're saying, I am crucified with Christ. Then it has to go through the filter of the great originator, God and his word. In the book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, a cultural shift was identified. And what the author did is he started to walk us through some, some seismic shifts in how we looked at sexuality. Prior to the 1800s, sexuality was understood strictly in light of behavior, not identity. 
In other words, if a person committed, and again, I'm, I'm normally not this blunt, but I'm not going to try to dance around terminology. If a person was involved in, in homosexual activity, it was, it was called out as activity, but the person wasn't identified as the same. In other words, sometimes we know that, okay, I, I, I've done something, but am I more than what I have committed? Okay, so my dad would say, hey, Redlands don't throw snowballs at cars. What he's saying is rise above the activity. That's not supposed to define you. You're supposed to change your activity and be consistent with who you are. Well, prior to the 1800s, sexuality, it's understood in, strictly in light of behavior, not identity. In 1870, a German psychiatrist, Carl Westfall, began using the phrase homosexuality as a way to characterize a person's identity, not simply their actions. So now there's this shift that says that's something other than their actions. This is who they are, their very identity. And then Sigmund Freud um, comes along. He begins using terms like homosexual and heterosexual as a category for personhood, not just practice. Again, a deeper level of identity. In other words, Freud began saying a person is a homosexual or a heterosexual rather than a person practicing one of the same, establishing identity. There may be no other sin issue so closely linked with identity than how a person views themselves in light of sexuality. Again, this is, I believe, something that goes back to how we have inverted our, the view of our body. This thinking actually began with a subtle but powerful shift from what a person does to a distorted view of who a person is. Remember 1 Peter 2, 9. But ye are, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should, this is the intent, this is our created purpose that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse number 8 he says again this is a theme that he just keeps keeps bringing us back to. For ye were this is who you used to be ye were sometimes darkness but now are ye light in the Lord. And then he adds this and I find it really interesting. He says, okay, this is who you were. You were sometimes darkness, but you are children of light. Then he says, so therefore walk as children of light. In other words, he's saying, you used to be this, but you're not that anymore. You are now this. You're not what you used to be. So walk like who you are. That tells us something. It's insightful on a lot of different levels, but it's insightful that it does tell us like, oh, wow, does that mean that Paul's saying I could be a Christian, but walking in a manner inconsistent with who I am? And the answer is yes. So he says, start living like who you were created to be. So this understanding frees me from focusing on the goal of identifying as heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual or pansexual or asexual it it frees me I am not trying to get to the goal of okay what do I have to be I have to be uh, a heterosexual no no I have to be who I am in Christ 
And if I get the first identity right, it rightly informs all the lesser identities. If a person has a flawed view of who they are, they'll have a flawed view of how they live. Now, if a person says, we we use this kind of terminology today, if a person says, I am gay, and that's truly who they are, it'd be cruel for someone to condemn them for simply being themselves. But now what we've done with this is we've selected a lesser identity. And now we've allowed a lesser identity to become my sole identity. And I've actually chosen the wrong thing. If my identity is not determined by my sexuality or by my feelings, but by the one whose image I bear, then I have something greater than my feelings or my sexual desires that truly defines me. So we started by asking the question, who am I? And then we go to this question, where does true identity begin? Have you ever read about someone who, who you know, they were some medical trauma, you know, some, some severe incident where they suffer amnesia? Something happened and now they're actually confused as to who am I? I think in the Christian realm, there are a lot of times things that take place in our life and it confuses us as to who am I? Some of us go through life with some kind of spiritual amnesia, not knowing who we truly are. We may know our name and address, but we don't know how important it is to understand our true identity in Christ. When we were created with the image of God imprinted upon us, if we begin with anything other than him as our first identity, we begin to distort his true image in us. This is true in a lot of areas, but it is certainly true in sexuality. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I'm created to reflect him. God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. The evening and the morning were the sixth day. One of the reasons we treat every person And let me repeat this. And when I say every, I mean every. Not like everybody that's in this group. I mean every person. You say, well, what if they identify as, I mean every person. So one of the reasons we treat every person with dignity and respect is because we are all created in the image of God. This is the true foundation of human dignity. It's the basis of all human rights, including the rights, by the way, of the unborn. Why Why do they matter? Because they're created as image bearers. They're created purposefully in the image of God. God illustrated distinctions that, that were purposeful on his part all through creation. And he culminates these distinctions as who am I? in the creation of man and women. I mean, you just think through creation, God separated light from darkness, day and night, evening and morning, waters from the heavens, the land from the sea, the plants and the trees. And then he makes distinctions after their kind, the fish and birds and animals. And then he makes distinctions after their kind. He's separating all of these different groups of his creation. And he culminates that, the pinnacle of his creation is the distinctions that he made with man and women. Just two, God then gives them at least part of his reflection through their biological identity, their gender. 
God defines each of his acts of creation as good. And then he said it's not good that man should be alone. And now God could have gone on and created another man to procreate. He could have created two women to do so. But God created man and women. And then he pronounces this good. When we begin with our identity as assigned by our creator, we've begun at the right place. Our true identity is not found in what I do. Nor is it found in how I am. In other words, at times I am happy or I am sad or I am funny or I am serious. You are far more than those momentary or even seasonal or sometimes extended thoughts of this is who I am or how I feel. We must always begin with a God-centric view of humankind. We were created in the image of God to be reflectors of him. And even though all of, this is, all of us are distorted by sin because of the fall, we understand that God is working all things together for our good in order that our lives may become more accurate reflectors of him. When we deny God's created genetic order, we are allowing psychology to supersede our biology by saying what I feel is who I am. So, where does this, um, what does a person do with their feelings? And this, this really starts to get to the heart of this issue. What does a person do with feelings? When Adam and Eve were first created, they obeyed God perfectly. This was what some theologians call the state of innocence. However, after they sinned, they immediately attempted to shift the blame away from themselves to self-justify. The fallout from their sin is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. The implications are are deep and extremely far-reaching. Some of the consequences of the fall are what we might call natural consequences. These are not sinful, but they're certainly hurtful. Okay, there are some non-sinful consequences, and some of you are more familiar with these than others. But things like cancer... Cancer is not this like, oh, that's because of your sin. No, this is one of the, the broken aspects of the fall. And we deal with this now. There's all kinds of these. My dad has Parkinson's. My, my dad is the, you know, I mean, growing up, my dad's the strongest guy I know. But he's not that anymore. Why? There wasn't Parkinson's before sin broke the universe. But there is now, and it impacts my father. Diabetes, pneumonia, blindness, deafness, learning disabilities, disorders, autism. All of these are different aspects that that we would say these are some of the natural consequences of the fall. And while all of these are unfortunate and sometimes tragic, they're not sinful. But they are results of the fall. But, But sadly, it gets worse. The sin of mankind also brought about other consequences. This has to do with our nature and then with consequential guilt. And in some sense, we might say that we've all begun on this level playing field of brokenness because we're all born with a sin nature that's impacted us deeply. We, we are in some way, shape or form, we're broken to the core. That, that's why the Bible helps us understand among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, all. You might say, well, well, my sin is not nearly as detestable as theirs. Well, maybe in your sight, in, in whom we all had 
Every one of us. So we're not trying to, to categorize this is a more pleasant sin and this is a more detestable sin. The Bible helps us understand that we all had our conversation and time passed in the lust of the flesh, filling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. He paints a very direct, accurate picture of us all. So what are some of the sinful consequences of the fall? Well, my words, I say things I shouldn't say. My thoughts, I think thoughts that I should not think. My actions from, from thoughts and, and, and sometimes like, okay, well, I, I could be the David on the rooftop that looks out and, oh, now I have, I have thoughts that are actually going to bring about now these actions that are gonna bring in very literal ways, I'm not being inappropriate with this, but David brought forth physical fruit from a person to whom he was not married because he brought about mental fruit that is the result of his broken lusts of the flesh. He wouldn't have done it before the fall, but David now has a bent towards sin. He's got, you know, what we refer to as this new, new software running on some old hardware. So what do we do regarding this? As believers in Jesus Christ, we are at a place where before the fall, man was able to sin, but he hadn't. After the fall, it's like the only thing he can do is sin. And now what happens when a person comes to Christ? Well, I'm still able to sin, but I don't have to. I don't have to. And, and I hope all of us at least come to a point where if we say, wow, these are... These are hard conclusions because our culture is not landed here. And if culture continues to go the direction that it's going, you're going to be in a strong minority position with this. Or you might be saying, listen, I'm struggling with some of the very things you're addressing right now. So, so you know, what am I supposed to do about this? We're supposed to understand that when Jesus said, if the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Indeed. That means that my desires are not supposed to define me. I have to find an identity that is greater than my desire. So what do we do with a person who, who says, I, I don't know what to do. I, I feel like this is, this is my identity. This is who I am. Because I was a born sinner, does that mean that I am permitted to sin? Some people's argument may be, listen, pastor, I'm not trying to be sensational about this. I'm not trying to be, you know, but I, I feel like I've always had these desires. I've always had them. Okay, if you named any other sinful desire, any other sinful desire, and I said, I have that desire, if I was born with that broken desire, does that give me a pass to act upon it? So I'm trying to be really careful about this because I, I don't want to argue with someone who says, I've, I've always been this way, so how do, I, how do I deal with this? Because this is who I am. I, I do believe that you've chosen a, a lesser identity. So what do I do then? Just because I have always had certain desires does not give me the right to act upon them. And you could, you could use that kind of thinking for a lot of different areas that we'd say, you know, I mean, if I want to be a little silly about this, okay, um, and I love puppies, I love dogs, but what if I grew up just this violent kid? 
And wherever I saw a puppy, I'm the one, you know, killing the puppy, all right? And so wherever I see him, man, I just want to go. And I, I have this violent nature aspect about. And then as I grow, that just transfers to people. And Is any judge, forgive the silliness of it, but is any judge going to give me a pass because I've always been this way? So God, the, the righteous judge, doesn't allow my desires that I may have had for a long time and are deeply held as the answer for my action. So what's the goal for every person, regardless of their desire? And we'll finish with this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, the Bible says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning, listen to the terminology he uses, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts, in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That's lifestyle. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. I said earlier that the goal is not to say, well, my goal is, our goal is to be heterosexual. That's our goal. That's not our goal. Our goal is to be holy because he is holy. Holiness, as God is holy, should be the focus of every child. We might define, you know, if we, if we wanted to say, what, is that, what does that look like? Well, it'd be the goal for those who remain single, holiness. It'd be the goal for those who marry, holiness. Neither one is superior to the other. And both should be marked by holiness. We might define this as chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. That, that is helpful reflections of his holiness. If you are single, you should be sexually abstinent while fleeing lustful desires. If you are single, you should be sexually abstinent while fleeing lustful desires. If you're married, you should be sexually, emotionally, and mentally faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex while also fleeing lustful desires. Why? Because our end goal is holiness, even as he is holy. One man wrote, it is impossible that we should be so freed from temptation as to not be tempted at all. To be human in this life is to be tempted, but temptation is not sin. The fall to temptation is. You might say, well, I have temptation regarding same-sex attraction. To be tempted is not sin. To fall to temptation is. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, you're not the first person and you won't be the last to face temptation, regardless of its nature. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. I can navigate. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought 
to the obedience of Christ. There are other things, of course, that we could address and and ways that I think science today is, is actually, as it always does, true science does agree with scripture. You know, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How do, I, how do I deal with some of the challenges that I'm facing? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Science today deals with things like neuroplasticity. It's, it's saying there are ways that you can actually rewrite some of those pathways in your brain that you say, man, my, my, my thinking goes there so quickly, so naturally. Well, how do I change this? God says, I, I have a, a plan for your thinking. I mentioned Rosaria Butterfield in her, in her book um, earlier, in her book that she wrote, Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. She said that my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. She, she lived a lesbian lifestyle um, that was quite profound. And a pastor and his wife, she, she was trying to, to write an article. She taught in, a, in an Ivy League university. She's trying to write an article to just show how crazy Christians were. So she finally attended church one day and, and she said, my conversion, she has an article titled, My Train Wreck Conversion. Well, she, the, the, the Lord radically changed her life radically but she said there is still something lurking it's like that shiny knife that is that is raised in the corner and it is ready to pierce at any given moment say why is that because we still live in these broken bodies at the age of 19 the guy that that the lord used to bring about what we refer to as the great awakening in america wrote in his diary I have been before God and have given myself all that I am and have to God so that I am not in any respect my own, neither have any right to this body or any of its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, to these feet, no right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell or this taste. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. May we, like him, give ourselves clear away and retain nothing as our own. And as believers who have a hub, a center, may we graciously, tenaciously hold fast to it. And may we compassionately, lovingly lead others to the same.